What I'll do for you is I will describe in some detail all of the challenges going on around Latin America, only to conclude that everything I say is much worse in Haiti. Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. I'm Scotty Greenwood with the Canadian American Business Council, and I'm joined by the coolest podcast host ever. Maybe not the coolest, the smartest, and the funniest. Chris Sands. Good to see you at Wilson Center. Good to see you, Chris. Uh, Thanks very much, Scotty. And I have to say this is awkward because our guest today shares a podcast with me over the Wilson Center. And uh, so I might not be able to be the coolest with him (laughs) in the room. Um, So I'm excited that we're going to have an opportunity to talk with your super smart colleague, Benjamin Gadan. We're going to talk about something that I've been thinking a lot about um, in the Canada-US context, especially since the North American Leader Summit. But could definitely learn more. And that is what's happening in Haiti, Uh, the current state of affairs in Haiti, uh, what Canada, the United States and the world are doing uh, and what it all means. And one of the reasons, Chris, that we thought it would be good to talk about this is it's a subject that could come up, likely will come up when President and Prime Minister, uh, President Biden and Prime Minister Trudeau get together in just a few short weeks in Ottawa. So with that, why don't I turn it over to you to introduce your brilliant colleague? Absolutely, Scotty. And I'm really excited to have my colleague at the Wilson Center, Benjamin Gadan, who is the director of the Wilson Center's Latin American program and also of its Argentina project. Um, I also know him uh, as a colleague over at Johns Hopkins, where he's an adjunct professor and a great one. Students love him. I know our listeners will as well. Um, He's the former South America director at the National Security Council of the White House and was responsible for Honduras and Argentina at different times in the U.S. Department of State and also covered Central America and the Caribbean as an international economist at the U.S. Department of Treasury. So really knows the hemisphere extremely well. He's had a tremendous background uh, writing uh, opinion pieces for the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Miami Herald, foreign policy. And he's all over the media talking about one end of the hemisphere to the other. But most importantly, he's he has a real passion on Haiti. And we've been talking back and forth about how we could do some more work on Haiti. It's one of those problems that uh, that really we could use more deep thinking on. So, Benjamin, welcome. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be with the coolest podcaster around. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I should say the podcast that Benjamin and I do is called America's 360. And we do talk about hemispheric affairs over here at Wilson. And so uh, I'm only the second coolest uh, <laughs> At least the second coolest Wilson podcaster, because of course, Scotty, you're the coolest of them all. Uh, yeah, Let, uh, let's get let's go with that. So, um, Benjamin, I want to. I wonder if you could start by as an expert in the neighborhood, Canusa Street. We typically focus on the Canada-U.S. relationship, but often in Canada, the United States, we we are confronted with global challenges and challenges in the neighborhood. Haiti really springs to mind. And for people that don't um, specialize in these issues, maybe you could let us know what's the state of affairs um, of Haiti currently today. It's March 2023. What's going on there right now? It's long been a deeply troubled part of this hemisphere. 
you know, suffering from underdevelopment, natural disasters. Um, in particular, what comes to mind is a devastating earthquake in 2010. The results of that have been, you know, greater economic and humanitarian struggles. And so all of that provided the context for this really terrifying surge in gang violence that we've seen over recent years. It began even before the shocking 2021 assassination of the Haitian president. Um, and in fact, he allegedly was engaging with criminal gangs in Haiti at the time that had relationships with economic and political elites. But since his death, Haiti has been overcome by really an extraordinary explosion of not only gang violence, but political infighting and, and um, a collapse in Haiti's basic democratic structures. And so what you've seen is a country that had suffered from all of these maladies, humanitarian, economic, political, natural disasters, and all of it compounded by the government that no longer has democratic legitimacy, late on holding elections. It's an acting prime minister overseeing a country that is increasingly controlled by criminal gangs. And those gangs themselves have exacerbated issues like a cholera outbreak. They have exacerbated humanitarian challenges because of their control of critical infrastructure, such as roads and ports um, and the importation of, of necessary energy materials. And so you now have a country that already was the least developed in the Western Hemisphere and now, you know, is teetering on a failed state, teetering on an authoritarian system, teetering on a potential migration and refugee crisis, um, teetering on a political crisis that seems impossible to resolve. And that brings us to a conversation about what can be done about it and why is this an issue that rises to the level of U.S.-Canada relations? That's a, that's a great overview. And why don't you just uh, continue where you left off, is, which is, why does this, why is this something that the U.S. and Canada should pay attention to? The, the refugee migration crisis um, is, is one really obvious part, but, but why else? Yeah, I'd say there's humanitarian issues and, and compelling moral arguments for why countries that are nearby and with resources such as the United States and Canada should be more involved. So even setting aside the very real possibility of a destabilizing refugee crisis, and I should note, we're already seeing surges of Haitians coming toward the United States and Canada, including through this perilous jungle borderland between Colombia and Panama, known as the Darien Gap, where you know refugees and migrants suffer from criminality and, and uh, thirst and, you know, sort of you name it of the risks that can occur there. But sort of even setting that aside, there's, I think, a compelling humanitarian argument that people living in an area where they can't get basic education, they can't get health care, they're, they're at risk of gun battles. Families don't want their children to leave their homes. The national police is either co-opted or completely overwhelmed. Um, you know, I think that alone is a compelling reason, but sort of going beyond that are, are, are the possibility that as bad as things are, it all gets much worse with real catastrophic impacts for the neighboring Dominican Republic, for the migration routes toward the United States and Canada, and ultimately for the destination of many of these migrants and refugees, the United States and Canada and the rest of North America. Yeah, the, I mean, the, the moral case is compelling, the strategic self-interest security um, economic makes a lot of sense. Let me ask one more and then I'll turn it over to Chris. But you mentioned the Dominican Republic. And if people aren't familiar with the geography, Haiti and the Dominican Republic share sort of the same rock uh, sitting in the ocean. And and why is it in your estimation, Benjamin, that that the Dominican Republic is is a completely different scenario than Haiti? They're They're just you know, they're sort of one block away. What's the, 
What's the history on that for us? I mean, the the histories and political systems are highly heterogeneous on the island of Hispaniola. And I think there's a lot of study that has gone in to try and understand the different outcomes. I think, importantly, Haiti has had it very difficult from the very beginning. It was one of the very early examples of an Afro-descendant country earning its independence and fighting for it from France, and afterward being punished for having done so by countries, including the United States, that had been anxious about the idea of slave rebellions and of the independence of Afro-descendant communities. In fact, the Haitian would end up paying reparations to France, their former colonial masters, for you know a century afterward. Um, and so I think for a lot of reasons, including poor governance and bad decisions within Haiti, authoritarian rule, um, but also a lot of burdens imposed upon the young, independent Haitian state, that Haiti has had such terrible outcomes. We've also referenced some difficult geography and that Haiti itself has been subject to repeated natural disasters that have impeded its development. Benjamin, I, I want to tease you out a little bit on the Canadian connection. And we've talked about this before, but so it's a bit of a softball. But why Canada? I mean, the Canadians are very nice people. Obviously, the moral case sways them. But in, in looking at relations within the hemisphere, why does the U.S. turn to Canada uh, to help with a project like Haiti? Yeah, I mean, maybe... Chris, it's useful to step back and say, why is Canada, you know, a go-to partner on a lot of issues in the Western Hemisphere for the United States? I mean, I would start with the idea of shared values, which I think, you know, your listeners know well, but it shouldn't be taken for granted that Canada and the United States see themselves as countries supporting a democratic order worldwide, as defenders of human rights, as interested and deeply invested in, in sustainable economic development and addressing humanitarian needs. So I think there's a lot in common that makes Canada and the United States good partners. There's also risks in common. We've talked about the risk of uncontrolled migration from Haiti. Now, the United States would be most directly impacted by that. But eventually, um, migrants and refugees do often make their way to Canada and or Canada feels compelled to address the needs of big migrant communities and then bears some of the logistical burdens of that. So there's, there's some shared interests. There's lots of shared values. But there's more than that. Chris, as you probably know, I'm getting at, which is the very difficult legacy of the United States in lots of parts of the Western Hemisphere. And so Canada comes in with more of a clean slate. It comes in with similar goals, similar values, similar national security interests, but without the heavy burden of history. The United States has been part of some failed interventions and even a military occupation of Haiti that makes it more sensitive when the United States engages in the region, particularly engaging in the kind of ways Haiti needs right now. And we haven't really gotten to the nuts and bolts of what's needed in Haiti, but it's an armed intervention. I mean, I think we have to be blunt about what Haiti needs right now to stabilize itself. And so the United States, a former, you know, seen as an imperial power that has intervened in the Americas so many times, sometimes for good, often for, for less noble purposes, carries a lot of baggage that Canada does not carry. And so Canada has resources, capabilities, sophistication, and doesn't necessarily face the possibility of blowback and, and um, social unrest that the United States would if it led that effort. But Chris, can I just jump in on this and ask both of you, actually, I'd like to ask Benjamin and you. It, it seems to me, um, and I, I'm in the cheap seats a little bit on this one, um, that Canada has been relatively reluctant to take on leadership, global leadership for Haiti. The U.S. for many, many years has thought it would make sense for Canada to uh, shoulder the burden on this one. And the U.S. has a lot going on in the world. Um, Canada, a Francophone country. The governor general, the previous governor general of, of Canada was of Haitian descent. There are all of these connections 
um, the historic connections that you mentioned with France. Like, in, l- let me ask you both: Am I right that Canada is 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 reluctant in taking this on, and or is that true? Um, and could that change now with President Biden's upcoming trip, and given the dire? Uh, circumstance of the people who live in Haiti, how just awful it has become there. Oh, uh, uh, Benjamin, I'll, I'll start and then uh, and I'll let you fill in the part. I, so first of all, I think that there is, I think, a healthy caution on Canada's part because they know this is not a light assignment. You know, uh, in the last couple of years, Canada sent peacekeeping uh, peacekeeping contribution under UN auspices to Mali, and it ended up being a relatively small number of people, light footprint, short term. This is a big job, and if you look at the number of interventions and challenges the outside world has has the, the attempts we've made to try to stabilize the situation with ultimately no permanently good result, I think Canada is wary of taking this on um, by itself. or And that's why it's, there's been a dialogue at the UN. They've been looking for partners. I don't think they're afraid to lead, but I think they see this as, and rightfully so, a really difficult assignment, and, and they're approaching it that way. But Benjamin, how is it viewed in the rest of the hemisphere? Are they it, it, as caution or as, as reluctance? No, I mean, I think everyone is reluctant to get involved. I mean, I think we have to acknowledge that. The CARICOM grouping of Caribbean governments recently took up this issue and determined they were not going to get involved militarily. There had been some inklings that maybe the Jamaicans would play that role. But ultimately, I think they decided, at least for now, to try to support the national police in Haiti instead of sending a a foreign force. I think the United States, for reasons I've described, is very reluctant. Also, I think there's a perception there wouldn't be a lot of support within the United States for an armed intervention in Haiti, even if welcomed by the acting prime minister. The UN would be the natural uh, organization to do so, but it has a terrible record of, uh, you know, apparently introducing cholera, of sexual abuses there during the time of the last UN mission. So there's really not a lot of countries or any willing to raise their hand or to do so enthusiastically, which is, again, why the United States keeps turning to Canada to see if it would be willing to play this role. But, but I should note, it isn't out of just desperation. I mean, Canada serves in this core group of international actors that have been engaged in trying to find political solutions in Haiti. So Canada does have expertise. And I think it has shown some at least diplomatic courage in recent years. When trying to address the Venezuela crisis, for example, for a period in Latin America, there was this so-called Lima group of countries promoting democratization. The United States was a big supporter, but not a member. And Canada not only was a member, but would host foreign minister gatherings in Canada to try to promote political dialogue. You know, there have been uh, efforts to get Canada more involved in Cuba, for example, given the relationship it has maintained. So I think there's a lot of logic to the fact that the United States keeps turning to Canada, hoping that it will take the lead. But at the same time, I think an understanding of the reluctance that Chris described. So, Benjamin, given the scenario that you just outlined with corruption and criminality and humanitarian crisis, and and I think it's something like 11 million people that live in Haiti, right? Um, if you could give a step-by-step, here's what needs to happen first. Here's, you, you know, how, what, what would it look like? Because the, the earthquake that you mentioned, which focused a lot of us on Haiti for the first time in re- in recent years, um, you know, it was hard to get aid into the country because, the, you know, there was no place to land planes and there was no place to dock ships. So, it, you know, even earthquake assist and President Obama, you know, 
asked two of his predecessors to be involved in figuring that out. Oprah Winfrey got involved in figuring that out. That was a, that was a big effort. And, and it's just deteriorated dramatically since then. So what are the first two or three or four steps if, if one wanted to, you know, kind of begin to address the situation? What would you do? I think you need to acknowledge going in that the core problems in Haiti are kind of a generational project to address. And so at some point, Haiti ideally would be stabilized enough to address the kinds of infrastructure challenges that you've mentioned, healthcare and education challenges, a need for, you know, economic drivers of economic recovery. I think those are, as I said, kind of a much bigger project that the international community at some point will have to take on. Uh, historically and very unfortunately, I think the approach has been to keep Haiti at kind of a low boil where it's just stable enough that there's no migration crisis, but no one is really addressing the kind of core root cause causes of its underdevelopment. Um, you know, we recently did an interview about Haiti with a former Haitian ambassador to the United States, Raymond Joseph, who said you really need a Marshall Plan-like project there. Again, that's not the short-term issue that we're dealing with. What we're dealing with in the short term is the need for there to be fewer homicides, fewer kidnappings, less cholera. You need some kind of political dialogue to have a government of national unity and then enough stability to hold an election so that you have elected representatives who have some legitimacy so that you don't have this acting prime minister who, who's really questioned by many in the opposition, not just on policy questions, but on basic democratic credentials. You have this Montana group that has a really difficult time accepting that any kind of transition or U.S. government role or Canadian intervention could even occur under the auspices of a figure um, with a very thin kind of hold of, of credibility. And so I guess what I would answer your question is to say what's needed right now is probably the most difficult assignment for the international community. It's to pacify a country that's utterly lawless at the moment. Wow, that's, um, we're, I'm going to take a deep breath on that. And actually, we'll take a break. And when we come back, what I'd like to do um, is have you take the opportunity to have a, an expert like you put the Haiti crisis in context of what else is happening uh, in our hemisphere. So we'll be back in a moment. Are you red, white, and blue, or just red and white? Beaver or Bald Eagle, Ryan Reynolds or JLo, Canusa Street, a masterclass in cross-border relations. This is where Canada and the United States intersect on the policies and issues of our two great nations. But you know that already. That's why you're here. The question is, if you want more of this bilateral bonanza delivered directly to your inbox, and you know you do, how about signing up for Scotty Greenwood's weekly email updates on Canada-U.S. relations? Head to cabc.co to sign up today. And now back to Canusa Street. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everyone. We're here with my Wilson Center colleague, Benjamin Gadan, who directs our Latin American program. And we're talking about Haiti. And when we broke uh, for just that last break, Scotty had asked a question about uh, the kind of things that need to be done to put Haiti, uh, at least in some sort of better position to take care of itself. Um, Benjamin, I wonder if, if you could talk a little bit about, uh, how the Haitian diaspora interacts with, with Haitians, uh, on the ground. I mean, we know there are, there are many in Montreal. There's a, there's a community there. There's a community in Florida. But how is the diaspora connected or, and how does it contribute positively, negatively, uh, to, to what's happening on the ground in the country itself? 
The Haitian diaspora is extraordinarily successful. I mean, the president of Harvard University, I think, is, you know, a descendant of Haitians. And that's just one of countless examples of Haitians abroad. Uh, you know, the Haitians, I think, see that with pride, but also experience a brain drain of a lot of competent and inspiring figures who are no longer contributing directly to society. On the other hand, I think they do mobilize very effectively to make sure that, for example, in Washington, the U.S. Congress remains engaged, as it should be, on really important issues related to Haiti. You know, to me, pointing to the diaspora, it's, it's a resource, it's inspirational, it promotes, you know, international engagement, but it also shows what Haiti is capable of when you create um, a society in Haiti with enough peace and enough resources to allow, you know, all of this Haitian talent to express itself, you know, in, in the arts and in, in politics and economics. And so it gives you a reason to be optimistic about a really troubled place. And, and in that regard, um, is there a lot that the diaspora community today is doing, uh, rallying support? We saw this, we've seen this with other earthquakes, other disasters that, uh, and certainly we see it in now in Canada with Ukrainians who are worried about the Russian invasion. Um, is there a, a, an organization, a structure that brings uh, Haitians to the fore? Or is this something where their number one push, as you say, is inspirational, and in trying to convince their host governments or their new governments, if they've taken citizenship, to get involved uh, more broadly. Yeah, I mean, I think there's lots of organizations that are helping on the humanitarian side. But the kind of assignments that we're talking about that the U.S. is, is shopping around and continues to turn toward Canada are not the kinds of things that NGOs can be involved in, no matter how well organized or well financed or savvy. You know, we're talking about a security intervention. We're talking about trying to pacify a country that is increasingly controlled by violent gangs, well armed and often with greater capacity than the police and large portions of the country that are lawless. This is is just not something that we can ask of the Haitian diaspora. Um, we could certainly ask that, that members of the diaspora not make things worse. Unfortunately, the United States has found that there were individuals from Haiti and from other countries in the region involved allegedly in the 2001 assassination of the Haitian president, and several are now detained in the United States and, and will be charged if they haven't already been in involvement. So certainly we could ask that no one use North America to be further destabilizing Haiti. But no, I think, you know, the truth of the matter is these are things things that states need to do. And they're beginning to act. I mean, Canada has been sanctioning Haitian elites, political and economic, as has the United States. The UN has set up a framework to do it in a multilateral fashion, but it's taking some time to identify who are the major figures in the gangs and who are supporting them. But Canada and the United States have been up front. I say that as an example of the kind of actions that only governments can take. That, that makes a lot of sense. And then maybe maybe one sort of last uh, question in that strut, and I, I want to I Go back to um, I want to go back to Scotty, but if you having been around the, the National Security Council uh, table at the White House, how how do governments look at these kind of things? I mean, the U.S. is simultaneously dealing with global crises, everything from the hur uh, from the uh, earthquake in Turkey uh, to Russia to China. Um, it's often said that middle powers can kind of pick up some of that slack when the big powers are sort of going toe to toe. Is that is that a realistic assumption or is that more the sort of academic looking from the outside and sort of wish wish wishing that middle powers would take it this role? Uh, or is this something that ultimately, you know, inside the White House, it's thought of, OK, this is what the U.S. can do and we can maybe assign some tasks to others, but we're going to have to bear the burden ourselves if we want the region to be safe. Yeah, I, I'd say two things, Chris. I mean, I think 
the United States is hoping for middle powers to play a bigger role, not only because it would free up the United States to tackle other issues globally, but because, as I alluded to earlier, in this case, I think Canada would be more effective than the United States in taking on this task. And I know sometimes Canadians don't believe that or they think this is just flattery from south of the border. But the reality is, I think there are assignments in Latin America that Canada is uniquely capable of taking on and succeeding. And again, it's because of the history that the United States has in the region, and it's because of the capability of the Canadians at times working in the Organization of American States, at the UN General Assembly, deploying in places like Haiti, where they would be less likely to provoke a social and political backlash, where it would seem less like an imperial intervention and more like welcome assistance from a wealthier, more developed country. The other thing I would say, though, Chris, is that I do think the United States should also be a driver of the response here. You know, the United States does have commitments around the world. It is pouring incredible resources into Ukraine, for example, in the conflict with Russia. But unless the United States has a peaceful near abroad, unless there are relatively prosperous, relatively stable, democratic countries in the Caribbean, in Central America, in Mexico, in South America, the United States really can't play the global role it wants to play. And that's the reality, that the United States, if distracted by risks to national security in the Americas, it will never have the resources and attention to, to take on responsibilities globally. And so it's of critical interest to the United States that places like Haiti are stable. And, and that I just have a hot pursuit question on that. Um, because I know a lot of our Canadian listeners are like, oh boy, the Americans want us to take on a tough job again. Do we, as, as in the foreign policy community in the U.S., do we reward that? You know, Canada takes this on. It's going to be expensive. It's not going to be easy. Does that buy Canada a little bit of, I don't know, um, attention or, or, or sort of brownie points that can be used when Canada's got something it really needs U.S. attention on? Is there a give and take or is this really a one-way street? Because I know a lot of Canadians would say, well, Haiti's maybe not worth it, but the U.S. relationship, maybe that makes it worth it for us to take this on. Absolutely. I mean, I think if, if the United States is practicing diplomacy with, with any skill whatsoever, it will absolutely be rewarding countries like Canada when they step up in situations like this. It's not a get out of jail free card, right, for every trade dispute and any disagreement, softwood lumber, um, you name it. It's not going to resolve those questions and you won't have that kind of trade. But I do think it, it shows the value of these kind of partnerships and it generates enormous goodwill. And, and I very much hope and anticipate that that kind of goodwill generates good outcomes comes and support. And I do think, you know, if we're talking, you know, Scotty was mentioning kind of longer term efforts to stabilize Haiti, the United States would no doubt step up as it did after the 2010 earthquake with the kind of financial resources to enable a Marshall Plan like response or something not quite at that scale. But if Canada stepped up into an assignment like this and took on the political risks, the reputational risks, the logistical challenges, I absolutely think it should be and would be rewarded in its relationship with the United States. I agree entirely with that, Benjamin. That I don't think there's any doubt about that. And by the way, Canada needs to um, replenish the well of goodwill with the United States. It needs to gain some leverage. It needs to uh, do a number of things. And whether it's um, going faster on development and processing of critical minerals, uh, which is something the U.S. cares a lot about, or it's taking on a, a giant challenge like this, um, I agree, Benjamin. I think the U.S. would notice. Uh, so um, I'm still struggling to figure out what the actual first step is, but I'm going to set that aside for a second. I, I want you to, if you would, um, as we um, come to the 
final period here um, of this podcast. Can you put into context what's happening in Haiti? Because there are, you know, our hemisphere um, has several countries that have big challenges. Peru comes to mind. I mean, Venezuela, there, there are a lot. So can you can you just give us a kind of a walk about the hemisphere and let us know um, from your perspective how things are going and 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 where Haiti falls the, the the tremendous crisis in Haiti, the failed state that it is, the situation people are living in and crime and disease and famine and all of that. Where does that, how does that compare to the neighborhood? It's an important question, Scotty. What I'll do for you is I will describe in some detail all of the challenges going on around Latin America, only to conclude that everything I say is much worse in Haiti. Okay. And, and the problems are quite serious elsewhere. Um, you've alluded right. to Peru, which is you know cycling through president after president with corruption scandals. It right now has a leader who you know took over from a president who attempted to close Congress and now is is been detained. He was subject to corruption allegations in Ecuador. The president now may not finish his term. Either. That's next door in the Andes. Um, Argentina, you know, which is the second biggest economy, had nearly 100 percent inflation last year and is now heading toward a recession and potential you know, political consequences of that. The vice president was nearly assassinated a few months ago. You know, Chile, one of the most stable countries in the hemisphere, just in 2019, had massive rioting go on, really shocking South America and is now going through a really difficult constitutional reform process. You have three dictatorships in a region that other than Cuba had become fully and robustly democratic. Those are in Venezuela and Nicaragua. Um, and in Cuba, you have 7 million Venezuelans who have had to flee their homes in the last 10 years or so, given the the, the collapse of the uh, democratic system and also the economic uh, trials that they have been through and hyperinflation. And so Central America and the northern part of it, Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, also really captured by organized crime and gang violence, enormous uh, migration challenges. So so the region is is just finished what is often referred to as another lost decade, another 10-year period like the 1980s with almost no growth. The political consequences have opened the door for populists and authoritarian kind type figures. Um, you, you in the midst of, you know, the democratic backsliding, these figures have emerged um, with, you know, the kinds of shallow and hyper-partisan and polarizing responses that undermine institutions and don't ultimately answer the real challenges. That's a quick kind of walk about the region. And again, everything I said, I hope, seems, you know, intensely urgent and really worrisome. And yet, returning, Scotty, to our theme for this conversation, everything is much worse in Haiti. You know, it's often, you know, said that Haiti is, you know, the only country with a last name. Haiti, the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, as it's often described. And again, that was a description of Haiti in the good times, with some political stability and some hope for, you know, finding solutions to chronic underdevelopment. And these are not the good times in Haiti. Thank you for that. And it's it's sobering and it it and it puts in context how really fortunate Canada and the United States are uh, just to have as tough as it is and and the challenges that we go through in our political and governance systems and and lack of faith in institutions it is a uh, you know a relatively um, good problem to have uh, when you think about when you think about in comparison I don't think Benjamin you mentioned Mexico um, in your tour de force did you because I'd love to hear you know again um, if there are any countries you didn't mention in our neighborhood, let's go ahead and tick those off too. And then we'll, and then we'll, then we'll wrap up here this rather depressing and sobering uh, conversation. 
Mexico is an interesting one for our conversation because it has been active with the United States diplomatically in trying right. to find solutions for Haiti. The, the current president of Mexico, uh, known as AMLO, Andres Manuel López Obrador, does not have a very active foreign policy. He hardly ever travels. He sort of engages in the in the NALS, the North American Leader Summit process, but, but generally is disinterested in foreign policy. But he's taken an interest in Haiti, which I think should be encouraged. On the other hand, he's, he's not an ideal partner. Um, he is someone who is now at war with his own electoral institutions, seeking through the Mexican Congress to deprive it of the resources it needs to, to keep Mexico's relatively young democracy functioning properly. And so, you know, in some ways, he's an imperfect partner in this. But, you know, Haiti needs all the friends it can get, and it needs the kind of courageous foreign ministries and presidents who are willing to, you know, attempt something with very little upside and a real possibility of backlash. And so I would say in, in Mexico, things internally are unsettled in the run-up to the next Mexican election, but yet I think it should be encouraged that Mexico is trying to engage with the U.S. on Haiti. I agree with you, and I'm I'm glad to hear you say that. And and I and I'm also grateful to you for this conversation. And I think what I'd like to propose um, is that as we wrap up here, Chris, maybe we should think about some members of the Haitian diaspora uh, because because I'm I'm just stuck with tell me something concrete that can be done uh, because pe people of goodwill are so worried about Haiti and the the challenges are so large that, you know, I, I want somebody to say, um, here here is like literally where you start. And and I think Benjamin said it with, with restoring peace and order. Um, so how, how do we do that? And, and whose military uh, is the UN have they straightened themselves out enough so that they can come come in have a force come into the country like what does that look like or are we at risk that some other countries that are not so friendly to us decide to try to take over um and and restore order so chris what what about that as a follow-up to this because because benjamin just just outlined a, a whole lot of things we need to think about and uh and and i want to i want to continue the conversation well, I think one of the things that Canada and the U.S. share is um, there's a lot of unofficial development assistance that goes on because of church groups and others. And for years, I think Canadian and U.S. church groups have worked in Haiti to try to make a difference in a small way. It might be running a small school or a, a program for meals or, or for clothing. And what I'm taking away from the conversation with Benjamin is that in order for that kind of activity to continue, and that's what a lot of us individually have tried to do with Haiti uh, on our own, we need the security environment. And that's something states can do and, and probably only states can do. And as much as we want to help, maybe the best thing now is to find a way to get the governments to take that challenge on and maybe just create a little more space so that the generosity and the compassion of people in both our countries uh, can really do good work in Haiti and add some. Add Absolutely. Some value. All right, Benjamin, I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave you one last uh, opportunity to give some advice based on your time uh, in the White House and in the State Department, and understanding that President Biden is about to travel to Ottawa to see his counterpart, Prime Minister Trudeau. Um, what do you think he should say? What should the president? We think. I think this topic will come up. What do you What do you think the president is being briefed to say, and what do you think he should and will say? 
Yeah, I think he should address right up front what's in it for Canada. I think understanding the domestic politics would be challenging in Canada as they would be in the United States for making an open-ended commitment to get involved in the security side of the Haitian crisis. I think the United States should be very forthright about what it would mean for Canada, United States, where the United States would be backing Canada um, materially and diplomatically in doing so, and, and recognizing that this would have to be sold to the Canadian people just as the United States would have to convince the American people that this is the right thing to do. Um, and I also think it would be nice to recognize that this would be part of a broader um, engagement with Canada on Latin America issues. And I do think it's worth reminding Canada over and over again that this is an important role for Canada to play and that Canada has had a really big impact in the North America project and could have a really positive impact beyond North America throughout the rest of, of Latin America and the Caribbean, and that there's reason to do so. I mean, you on, on this show have talked a lot about the friend-shoring notion, the reordering of global supply chains, the, the reconsideration of how um, countries interact and how values-based alliances are increasingly critical. And I think that provides this incredible platform and justification for U.S.-Canada collaboration throughout the Western Hemisphere, modeled after the North America project, but moving further south. And this is certainly a good opportunity to, to showcase that and to really make sure that partnership works. Well, thank you. Very well said. Thank you very much for joining us. It's uh, it's been enlightening, sobering, as I said. And uh, but we're very grateful to you. And we'll we'll continue talking about Haiti. That's for sure. I would just say, Scotty, that one other piece where where Canada can be helpful is also on the diplomacy. I mean, one of the reasons countries like Canada are reluctant to go in is that there's just no consensus in the in the Haitian political system right now for the sequencing of international support. Can you do it under the acting prime minister? Must there be a political transition first, or at least some announced? agreement, some new coalition government. One thing that, that the United States and Canada could discuss right now is how to leverage the opportunity for an international force, um, but make sure that it happens in exchange for some real commitments within the Haitian political system um, to forge consensus. Otherwise, no political intervention, no security intervention will succeed. And so that, that I think, would be another topic, is, is dangling the possibility of real security assistance, um, but requiring first that the Haitian political system you know, function. Yeah, such as it is. I mean, any it occurs to me that any security force that comes in is going to have to come in with uh, real security capability, but also clean water, medicine, and food. Uh, so it's 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 a it's a very complex mission for sure. All right. Well, with that, thanks again, Benjamin. Really great to have you. Really appreciate your expertise, and we'll keep going. Likewise. Thanks for the invitation, Scotty and Christopher. Oh, gosh, Chris, this could have been our um, Thanksgiving episode to count our blessings because, my gosh, when you realize uh, the state of people's lives in right here, not far away, not across the world, but right here uh, in our neighborhood, you, you, you know, just it, talking to Benjamin reminds me about how truly fortunate we are. And, and, uh, and I've you know, that was my biggest takeaway from this. And, and I, we got, we got to keep talking about it though, because until we figure out a game plan to fix it and keep talking about it, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to worry about this. I think there's nothing like third country crises to remind Americans and Canadians about how much we do share our values. You know, sometimes it gets lost in the bilateral because as we compare with each other's systems, we might think, well, Canadians are very distinctive from Americans. Put us in front of a crisis like the one we have in Haiti or like the earthquake in Turkey. And I think you see Canadians and Americans instinctively having very similar compassion, concern, priorities. 
And I think that's very strengthening for the relationship. This is a tough assignment. I'm not sure if Canada gets heavily involved, there's no guarantee that it's going to go well. But sometimes the effort is is the key and working together is the key and reinforcing the fact that we have those shared values. I think it strengthens the Canada-US relationship when these issues come up. Well, and we have to raise uh, awareness of, of what's going on, because if there is going to be a Marshall plan, whatever the new one is, who's who is Marshall? today <laughs> and who's giving that assignment and and so so that's why it's important to talk about it and I'm and I'm glad that we have this opportunity I'm glad that the president is traveling to Canada uh, because this is a time when you have bilateral meetings you don't just talk about the bilateral relationship although they will you talk about the world you talk about the neighborhood and you figure out how you can cooperate so um, you know that's that's a good thing too uh, that that uh, we have this meeting coming up Absolutely. I, I think it'll be the next step. And I'll look for that in the in the press announcements, maybe some su- sense that there's some progress. It may mean that we have to convene some leaders from Haiti today in a place like Montreal or Quebec City so they can get away from the violence, but think about how they can rebuild their country, or at least the political consensus that allows them to start rebuilding. Yep. Sounds good. Well, I'm grateful to you and to the Wilson Center, uh, to Zavi Delgado, who is our wrangler and excellent producer. And of course, Aaron Jones, who always manages to knit this stuff together and make it sound good by the time it, by the time it airs. So thanks to everybody on our team. And as always, Chris, thanks to you. Well, thanks to you, Scotty. Now, I sometimes at the Wilson Center am considered the luckiest man here because I get to work with you. But now <laughs> I, doubt that. I feel like the luckiest man because you see how you see my great colleagues. Yeah. I, I'm really lucky to have some great ones at the Wilson Center, and uh, but you're you're one of the stars in my uh, in my firmament. So I'm always guided by uh, by your glow. It's a crowded galaxy, and I'm pleased to be part of it. Anyway, see you next time on Canusa Street, my friend. All right, thanks very much. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.